We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Good morning, Emmaus. For those of you who do not know me, uh, I am one of the elders here. My name is Matthew Barrett. And uh, we are in the middle, well, really, actually at the end. I hate to even say that, but we're at the end of our uh, short series on the attributes of God. Uh, We have been preaching through the book of Acts, and we will return to Acts next week. Uh, But we have taken a break for the summer in order to focus on our glorious, incomprehensible God. I hope this series has been helpful to you. We could go on and on and on for the rest of the year. I hope you can sense that. Uh, But even these four weeks, I hope they have been a small taste that has given you, opened a window for you of fresh air to understand our God and his glory. We began this series with God's incomprehensibility. And then we moved to other attributes like God's aseity and even God's immutability. And this morning, perhaps you've never heard this word before. That's why we are going to focus on it. But we will be talking about God's impassibility. With that said, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel 15. As you do so, allow me, since it's a long chapter, allow me to give you some of the context in this pivotal moment in Israel's history in which everything seemingly is going to change. Well, you may know the story already. It's a tragic story. It is a tragedy if we were to turn it into a play. In 1 Samuel 15, Saul fails In the most colossal sense, he fails as Israel's king. God promised his king that he would deliver Israel from those Amalekites. And he gave his king every, a very clear, very lucid command, even a promise. When they go against these Amalekites, God will give them the victory. But Saul, as the leader of Israel, has some instructions that are unique and need to be followed to the details, the very very details. He must put to death King Agag and devote the spoils of war, which could be so appealing, to destruction. But Saul rebels. He rebels against the Lord. If you look at 1 Samuel 15, you'll see this, especially in those first 10 verses. Saul rebels against the Lord, and the Lord says then to his prophet Samuel, prophets were all often put in these awkward situations, but he speaks through the prophet Samuel to confront Saul. But before he does so, notice what he says through Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned his back from following me and has not performed my commandment. You see, not only did Saul keep Agag and the spoils of victory alive, 
But when the prophet Samuel confronted Saul, this king justified himself. He justified his actions as if they were in the service of God. Have you ever done this? We've all done this, haven't we? You rebel against God, but you spiritualize your sin. You make your sinful actions as if they somehow serve God in the end. The difference here, though, is that Saul is not just like any one of us. Here is the king of Israel himself. How does he do this? Look at the text there. He says, look, Lord, I kept the animals alive so that I could sacrifice them to you. What I find so horrifying about Saul's self-justification is this. He assumes that he, a man, can manipulate God emotionally. That is sitting behind, under the surface of those words. Underneath is this presumption, isn't it? Saul thinks he can treat Yahweh like the nations treat their idols. Gods. Many gods, in fact, that can maybe be persuaded to change, change their mind, change what they were committed to, go back on their instruction, their commands, as if this God can be handled, changed by the actions of a man. But Yahweh is no fool. Samuel responds to Saul, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. God's after the heart, isn't he? But notice, notice what comes next. These devastating words from Samuel. Four, presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Then Saul receives a devastating announcement. You have rejected the word of the Lord, Saul. And so now the Lord has rejected you as king. Now, the Lord certainly has his attention, doesn't he? Finally, Saul confesses his sin. Look at the end of the passage, verses 28 through 29. Notice what happens here. Saul is seeking a second chance. But the answer is no. Saul thinks, still, he still thinks, perhaps there's some way in all of his desperation, I can still change God's mind. So what does he do? He seizes Samuel. He grabs him, but he only gets his robe, and it tears, to which Samuel responds very prophetically, doesn't he? 
The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours. We know who that's about to be, don't we? Who is better than you. And also, listen to this, and also the glory of Israel. You sense the incomprehensibility of God coming through? The, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. For he is not a man that he should have regret. Notice Samuel confronts the presumptuousness of Saul. It's as if he's saying, how dare you, Saul, think that, that you can treat God as if he can be moved by you, a man, and your agenda. But didn't God say at the beginning, that he had regret? What do we make of this then? Well, on the surface, it could certainly seem like God realized he had made a mistake. He thought Saul was the man for the job, but now he's changed his mind after seeing how rebellious Saul can be. And God is now overcome with grief at his own unwise decision. But all we have to do is keep reading, right? Because in the context, what do we learn? We, well, we learn from the context, not just of this book, but the whole Bible, that such an interpretation, it undermines God's perfection as the glory of Israel himself. As if he is a God who makes mistakes. It undermines his trustworthiness, his wisdom, as if we can't trust this God who makes mistakes. It undermines his, what did we learn last week? His unchanging, remember that word? Immutable nature. As if he changes his mind. As if he experiences emotions that cause him to, to fluctuate. So then, what does it mean when the text uses that word regret? Well, Scripture often speaks with language that we might call anthropomorphic. That simply means, it's a big word, but it simply means that human language, human qualities actually, are used to speak of God who is not human. But we could even be more specific than that if we were to probe a little deeper here because sometimes Scripture also uses language that is what we call anthropomorphic. Popathic. That's a mouthful. I had to say it a couple of times before getting up here. What is this about? Well, it's very related. This is when language is used, human language, terms like human emotions or feelings or what we might call passions when talking about God who is not human. Why would Scripture do that? After all, we just learned that this is the glory of Israel. Friends, there's so much we could say here, but I have to begin this way. Do you see how this is God's gracious accommodation to us as finite creatures? How good of God. John Calvin 
I love how he put it. He said, it's like God is lisping to us. I know there's some of you in here who have some newborns in the room. I remember that. In fact, as a dad, maybe some of you dads can relate to this, right? It's that one moment when you do not care if you look like a fool. That baby is born, and you get on your knees on the ground, and what do you do? You start talking baby talk. You don't care, though, right? Because any, any, anything that could be a smile, a laugh, a giggle is worth it, isn't it? Somehow to communicate, to communicate to this newborn your love for them. So how gracious of God. The language of regret then, and this is where we have to be really specific. The language of regret, it does communicate something that is literally true. But it's not meant to be interpreted in a literalistic fashion. As if God is distraught because he now realizes what what a huge mistake he has made. And he is grieving overcome by this blunder. Now, there's two reasons we see this in a text like 1 Samuel 15. First, notice how it indicates God's total condemnation of Saul's rebellion. It is language we humans can immediately recognize and resonate with because it conveys absolute rejection. The holy God of Israel is stating in no uncertain terms, he stands against Saul. And he will no longer tolerate this spiritual treason. But there's a second reason that scripture might use this language. It conveys to us as readers that there is a, this is a pivotal moment in the story on which everything's going to turn. It conveys to us that God's plan all along has been to raise up a king after his own heart. By declaring his regrets, notice, God is announcing that this new king is on the horizon. What does he say? The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you and has given it to a neighbor. David. So notice, rather than Witnessing a change in God, as it turns out, we are instead witnessing the effects of God's eternal will for Israel at this time in history. Augustine was right, the church father, when he said, our God is without any change in himself, as if he is making changeable, as he is making changeable things. He remains unchanging. He undergoes nothing. What what Augustine means and what King Saul learned the hard way is this. The creator is not the creature. And therefore, I'm going to use a phrase here we're going to dwell on. So write this down, circle it, cement it in your mind. Therefore, God is without passions. God is without passions. What does that mean exactly? Well, what are passions? Actually, you're quite familiar with them. 
even though we don't tend to use this old-fashioned language anymore. Passions exist whenever finite creatures like you and me are acted upon, affected by, changed by something, perhaps something even external to ourselves. Where there are passions, there is a change within due to a feeling or emotion that moves you either to good or even to evil. You know what this is like, don't you? You're at the Chiefs game, right? It's almost halftime. Seconds are ticking down, and Patrick Mahomes steps up. He throws, what is it, like 50, a 50-yard, 50 maybe more, right? A 50-yard pass for a touchdown. And the crowd goes wild, and the, the buzzer sounds. They run, and it's halftime. And how do you feel? How, what effect is this having on you? Well, if you're a Chiefs fan, if you're not, this, this illustration isn't going to work for you. <laughs> but if you're a Chiefs fan, which I pray you are, <laughs> if you're a Chiefs fan, you're riding high, right? You're riding high on hope. You have total confidence. The game is ours. It's done. It's sealed. Who does that? Who throws that kind of pass? And then the second half comes, and it's like the Chiefs don't even know what direction the end zone is. <laughs> and what's happening now? What kind of effect is that having on you? Oh, well, if you're like me, all right, this is why my wife hates watching football with me. <laughs> You're in despair. All is lost. They stink. There's no hope. I give up. You don't want to know what it was, how emotional it was in the kitchen the day I found out Hill was traded. Oh, how affected I was. The despair. It was a dark, deep hour. But more seriously, right? We, we experience this all the time. You're at church one day and a Christian says something kind to you. It's like cold water on dry lips, right? And all of a sudden, you feel encouraged. You're confident. You're loving. Then you turn around and you overhear somebody gossiping about your friend. What kind of effect does that have on you? All of a sudden, you go from this feeling of encouragement and confidence and love and kindness. Suddenly, you're overcome with discouragement. You're angry. You might be fearful. You might feel like giving up on Christianity. You see the point? Passions. Passions to put it more technically, passions are simply the movement of your soul. And they, they can create passions for your body. Uh, you're sitting with me watching the cheese game. If I start crying, you'll have to forgive me. Because it could be tears of joy, could be tears of pain. And on a more serious note, we feel this, don't we? When somebody hurts us or when we want to celebrate. What's happening here? Well, passions are not necessarily sinful, 
but they are entirely creaturely. Because we are insufficient in and of ourselves. We are dependent in nature. And as needy creatures, passions reveal our deficiency. Whenever we are affected, the consequence is an emotional fluctuation, either for better or perhaps for worse. Passions always have the potential, the potential to cause suffering or loss. Passions may be appropriate for us because we are incomplete apart from God, always attempting to actualize our potential as human beings being moved to the good and away from the evil. But they are contrary to God, a God who by definition is perfect because he is absolutely complete, complete in every way, entirely self-sufficient. We've been preaching through Acts and soon enough we're going to return to it. But there's an encounter in Acts 14 that's one one of the most fascinating where Paul and Barnabas show up in Lystra And they heal a man. And when the crowd saw it, they say, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. They go further. They say, Barnabas, this is is Zeus. In fact, imagine this. The priest of Zeus is so excited. He comes out. He's bringing out his cattle. He's bringing out his sheep. Let's make a sacrifice to Zeus. Now, I don't want to steal Pastor Tyler's thunder when he preaches on this passage in the future, but I can't help myself a little. Notice how Paul responds. You don't have to turn there, but in Acts 14, notice how he responds here. I'll just read it to you in verse 15. Paul is beside himself. He says, we are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to the, to who? The living God, right? The living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the Greek language of this text, we could actually translate and and interpret this as if Paul is saying, stop, stop. We are men of like passions. We are affected in similar ways as you. And so Paul, what does he do? He goes back to creation. Let's talk about the distinction between the creator and the creature. And that distinction then explains why Paul is so horrified when they call Barnabas Zeus. Well, if you know about the gods of Greek mythology, they are actually very creaturely in a sense. One moment they're parading their power, Zeus being the god of the sky, heaving thunderbolts at his enemies. And the next moment, the very next moment, they are helpless even pathetic, wallowing in defeat and agony. You can't help but pity them. Why? Because they're not all that different from us. For this reason, throughout church history, the Christian God has been called impassable. Impassable. In fact, if you go back and look at our fathers, our Protestant fathers, and their, the confessions they wrote, they refer to this all the time. They say, we confess a God who is unchanging and therefore is without passions. Unlike man, God, they say, is not vulnerable. He's not acted upon by someone or something so that he undergoes emotional fluctuation 
Nor is he by nature fluctuating from one emotional state to another as if he has feelings analogous to ours. No one alters God so that he suffers loss. That word loss is super important. Remember what Tyler told us last week. God is the perfect being. A God of infinite life, infinite goodness, infinite blessedness. And therefore, He is complete in every way. He does not change because change implies he must change for the better, which means something must have been lacking. He does not change for the worse. Romans 1.23 says, for that reason, our God is incorruptible. Impassibility then is a corollary to immutability. If God's nature does not fluctuate, then then neither does he undergo emotional change. Does that mean then that God is lifeless and stoic and apathetic? Well, that caricature is often due, I think, to a misunderstanding. We think impassibility is an attempt to say something positive, even psychological about God. As if he is detached, indifferent, inactive, unconcerned, inert, even apathetic. But like we learned last week with immutability, impassibility, it is a negative concept. Not negative as in bad, but negative as in its primary purpose is to describe what God is not. This is called the way of negation. We negate anything of God that would somehow limit or cripple him. We deny anything that would be detrimental or deficient in God. For example, let's talk about love. Nothing else and no one else causes love to exist in God. That might change many of the worship songs you hear on the radio. Nor does God look to anything or anyone else for the actualization, the fulfillment, the completion of his love. The church fathers had a phrase for this. They said God is pure actuality or pure act. What do they mean by that? That's strange language, isn't it? They meant God is the fullness of life itself, in and of himself. He is maximally alive. Certifying that he could not be any more loving than he is from eternity. He he is love without measure. And though it may be very counterintuitive to us, especially in the 21st century, impassibility actually protects God's love. Because it guarantees that his love will not change. As if it could somehow grow weary. As if it must improve to grow strong. This is just a side note, but this is a reminder to us, isn't it? That whenever we use a word, especially a word that describes a passion, whatever that word may be, we always have to remember, be very careful that when we then move from ourselves to God, this is the incomprehensible God. And so however we ascribe that word to him, 
we have to remember he is that in the purest, most absolute sense, without any deficiency whatsoever. And passibility is, as I just mentioned, one of those concepts that tends to strike against our instincts, doesn't it? Because we live in a world that is suffering. I mean, think back to World War II in Nazi Germany. This horrific moment in time. Well, many modern pastors and even theologians reacted to that. How? Well, they tried to give hope, which is a good thing, but they tried to give hope to a suffering people when they were asked the question, where is God? And how did they answer? They said, well, God is suffering with you. He's in the concentration camp. He's gasping for air in the gas chamber. And he too hangs dead on those gallows. This became a very prevalent answer. It's not far removed, is it, from maybe some of the ways we might speak? Maybe you've spoken this way. Maybe it's a Bible study or a prayer meeting. Someone shares something terrible, a tragedy. Maybe it's in their own life. And there's this awkward silence, right? And you immediately want to jump, right? You want to jump. This is where things are most theologically dangerous, right? You immediately want to jump in, in the midst of this awkwardness and the pain and the sorrow, to say something that's going to assure them things are going to be okay. And so what do we do? We say, okay, don't worry. Don't, don't, don't worry. I know, I know you're suffering, but God was just as surprised by this tragedy as you. He was just overcome as you are. You're suffering, but God's suffering right here too. What do, what do we do with that? What do we make of that? Not that long ago, uh, my home county, Sonoma County, is just north of uh, San Francisco. It, I got a call from uh, my, my mom because she said, it's, it's, it's going up in flames. Uh, there was a natural fire and it just spread. And houses were just going up like that. Families sometimes in, inside if they couldn't get out quick enough. Imagine if, if that was your house and it catches on fire at night, and you barely escape, and then you have this terrible feeling in the pit of your stomach as you realize, oh no, my loved one is still inside the house. But imagine in that moment, suppose the neighbors are gathering and watching all this, and how do they react? Well, suppose one woman shows her sympathy by screaming uncontrollably, ripping out her hair, gouging out her eyes. Then there's a man. He wants to understand the pain, the suffering of what's happening by those inside. So he pours gasoline all over himself and lights himself on fire. Wow. Understandably, I imagine you would look around and not just be perplexed, but disturbed. Maybe even a little outraged. Until you see that fireman show up. Survey the burning house. He's so acutely aware of the danger. 
as well as the suffering and the turmoil by those within, that he refuses to be moved by these emotional outbursts, overcome by panic. Instead, he runs into the house, he rescues the loved one, while these onlookers uncontrollably weep. In that moment, we do not want someone who suffers emotional change, do we? We want someone who is impassable. Only they are able to save others from that burning house. Now, did that fireman lack compassion? No. In fact, his compassion was the most effective of all. While the compassion of others led to emotional meltdown, personal panic attacks, irrational behavior, the compassion of this fireman led him to act in a heroic way. He did not need to suffer himself to be compassionate. And similarly, we do not really, if we think about it, though it seems comforting at first, in that silent awkwardness, we do not really want a God who suffers in his divinity, despite what our instincts might say. Such a God may be like us, but he cannot help us, let alone redeem us from the evil that confronts us in this world. In fact, we need a God who is not merely impassable by choice like the fireman. He has a moment of heroism. We need a God who is impassable by nature. As Augustine once prayed, you, Lord God, lover of souls, show a compassion far purer and freer of mixed motives than ours, for no suffering injures you. Now, wait a minute you might say, if God is impassable and Jesus is the Son of God, then how can we say this because doesn't Jesus suffer on the cross? Thank you for that question. It's a hard one. First, we must, and this will take us back to some of what Tyler said last week, we must distinguish carefully between the two natures of Christ. Those church fathers who guarded the church from various heresies were careful to do just that. You can go home and just Google this and it'll pop right up. It's just a couple paragraphs, in fact. But in the 5th century, they actually wrote something. It was called the Definition of Chalcedon. And it instructed, they were very pastorally minded in the sense they were trying to help the church from losing its way. They instructed the church not to mix or confuse the two natures with one another on the one hand, or to divorce them from, from one another on the other hand. And so they confessed the one person of Christ in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, they said. By attributing human passions directly to Christ's divine nature, they worried we could confuse the two natures, subjecting both to change humanizing divinity. Now, it's a very good and right instinct to stress the unity of the God-man, the incarnate God-man. And yet at the same time, they warned us to be careful to preserve the distinction between the natures so that they are by no means taken away by that union that is so mysterious. So when we resist that temptation to confuse attributes of one nature with those of the other nature. They said, well, the property of each nature is 
preserved, concurring in that one undivided person. That person is not parted or divided into two persons, but there continues to be one and the same Son, and the only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. This can be seen very practically when we ask a question like this. Who is it that is suffering on the cross? Who is it? The answer, the person of the Son. But if we ask a slightly different question, what what is the manner in which the Son undergoes this suffering? Or answer sounds a little bit different, doesn't it? We say the Son suffers as a man. For the Son of God has assumed a human nature. He is not only true God, but he is true man. Gregory of Nazianzus, another favorite church father of mine, put it this way. He said, Christ is passable in his flesh, but he is impassable in his Godhead. I think that explains why Paul Have you ever wondered why Paul can use language that sounds so so much like a paradox? He can say to the Ephesians in Acts 20, pay careful attention, listen carefully to this, pay careful attention to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. What? What? Listen to what he says to the Corinthians. This is 1 Corinthians 2.8. None of the rulers of of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. How can Paul say that? You see, there's a tragic irony for those who reject impassibility. For if Christ suffers in his divine nature, then he is not actually suffering as a man. But isn't this exactly what we were after in the first place? Isn't this exactly what someone who objects, isn't this what they want? A Jesus who is like us, who can relate to us in our weakness, as Hebrew says. The person of Christ suffers, but the manner in which he undergoes that suffering is by means of his Humanity, which is why the New Testament can say again and again, he's been manifested in the flesh. It seems counterintuitive, I know. But if Christ suffers in his deity, or the Father and the the Holy Spirit suffers with him on the cross, then we have actually excluded the Son from suffering for us, for humanity. As one theologian has said, having locked suffering within God's divine nature, we have locked God out of human suffering. If the Son of God is going to act on our behalf, as Isaiah says, as our suffering servant, then it is critical that we honor his suffering as truly human. If we segregate that suffering to his divinity, well, we empty that suffering in the incarnation from its effectiveness entirely. Does this apply 
to what we believe about the gospel. Does this apply to you as a Christian? What about your Christian life? If God were passable, would that change anything about the gospel? About how it's applied to you and all the promises of the Christian life? I think it does. If God undergoes passions, emotional change, and if his perfections, his essence, or his works fluctuate in response to creatures, it's reasonable to wonder whether this God's promises both now and in the future, will stay true. The saving work of Christ to fulfill those promises, is it really true? Is it really effective? If God's perfections change, if he fluctuates from one emotional state to the next, his promises might as well. A passable God doesn't get any more practical than this, does it? You struggle with anxiety. You struggle with worry. A passable God would leave us in a state of anxiety. Unsure whether he will remain constant in who he is and what he says. His wrath would not be just because his retribution is potentially uncontrollable. His love would not be steadfast as the psalmist says over and over and over. Why? For a passable love guarantees no certainty of devotion. Friends, impassibility is the basis on which God's, everything from his steadfast love to his justice are built. The cross is a case in point. It is precisely because God does not suffer that he is able to send his son to suffer for us as a man, manifested in the flesh, The person of the Son suffers on the cross in the fullness of his humanity. And yet, he is able to do so because suffering does not victimize him. If God is just as much a victim as we are, then he is helpless, he is powerless, he is hopeless to embark on a rescue mission in the first place. That is not the picture that we see in the Gospels. The Gospels portray the Son of God even in the midst of all the pain. They portray the Son of God in total control of His mission. Have you ever wondered why Jesus seems to be so obsessed with predicting repeatedly what He will do, what will happen? Our Lord set His face to Calvary He announced, predicted his redemptive suffering, putting on full display his total sovereignty. But not only does impassibility guarantee that Christ can save sinners, it guarantees that God's love and grace are free. If God is passable, then his love is contingent on the creature, dependent on us for its fulfillment. It is incomplete. Someone might object that a real give-and-take relationship requires a passable God of love, but a love that is mutually dependent, changed by the one it loves. However, friends, passable love is entirely conditioned on humans. Grace is no longer free. 
Mercy is no longer a gift. And love is no longer purely gratuitous. God must look to those outside himself for the fullness of his love. And yet the Bible teaches us that God's love is unconditional. You are a sinner. And yet his love, despite how greatly you have offended him, his love is free. It is purely altruistic. Why? Because this love is... Well, it reflects a God who is impassable. It does not look to the creature for its effectiveness. It is rooted in his unchanging nature. In the end, only a God who does not suffer loss can accomplish redemption for us. Suffering by means of his humanity for all of us who are so lost. Only one who is impassable can become incarnate as the suffering servant. And only one whose love depends on no one can offer grace that is free of charge. Let's pray. Our great God, our Lord, impassibility we admit, is so counterintuitive to us today. Living in a culture that idolizes human passions, the way the culture around us has influenced our thinking about you means, Lord, that your perfection as the impassable God is so foreign to us. But Lord, without it, we risk confusing Zeus with you, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who says, I am who I am. We risk, Lord, making you a lot like us. And we confess this to be the essence of idolatry. Lord, we ask as a church, humble us to see your impassibility so that here at Emmaus, we may create an idolatry-free zone a church in which your people may worship in spirit and in truth. In the name of our... Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.